yeah, you can go down there and you can squawk all you want um, and have lots of happy noises. That's, that's the place where we want happy noises down that hallway. So if you, if you uh, benefit from childcare, go ahead and use that. It's okay if you squawk in here too, though. <clears throat> yeah, it's, I, mean, I know because Dan is wanting to. Uh, <laughs> if you have a Bible, turn in to Galatians chapter 2. We are continuing to learn from the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches that he planted <clears throat> that are in what we now know as Turkey. And these churches he planted, and then he, he moved on and found out later that other teachers had come around behind him with a contrary message, a different gospel. <clears throat> and so he has to write a defense of the true good news about salvation in Jesus Christ. And in that defense, it includes an account of a pretty serious public confrontation that he had one time with the Apostle Peter when Peter visited Paul's home church in the city of Antioch. And it's that account that we're going to consider today and learn its lessons for our life. Would you follow along with me as I read from God's Word in Galatians 2, 11 to 16? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Our gracious Loving and heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving for us your word, the scriptures. We know that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So would you encourage us again? with this passage today, that we might have hope in Jesus, your Son, who died for our sins. And we ask it in His name. Amen. I know many of us have been to Christian conferences, 
And the typical format is that several speakers are invited to talk, and they're usually popular people that are known, they have influence, they have wide-ranging ministries, um, well-known Christian leaders. And over a few days, you hear them give different messages on different topics, usually around some common conference theme. Now imagine this scenario, if you will. One of the speakers gives his message, and then that's followed by a panel discussion with that speaker and with the other leaders who are there. And the moderator asks the panel, what did you think about that message you just heard? And then one of the panel members responds this way. There is nothing good to be said about that message. It was awful. It was wrong. In fact, it was destructive, and nobody should listen to it. As a member of the audience, how would you feel <laughs> if that's what happens at the panel? I think it would be awkward, uh, at least, to say the least. Um, probably a lot of squirming in seats and wondering what's going to happen next. How is this going to go down? Maybe wondering how close are you to the exit in case it starts to turn ugly. That kind of confrontation typically doesn't happen in one of our conferences, right? Christian conferences. But that's exactly what happened one day at a church potluck in Antioch between the two most influential apostles of all time, Peter and Paul. In verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, and he did it before them all. That is, before the gathered church. Why did he do that? This is a tense moment. This is big-time stuff. This is the two apostles of Christ in confrontation. Why, Why would he do it? It was because Peter was preaching a gospel contrary to the one that they received, not in words, but in his actions. Paul says, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is the account that's written for our instruction to help us not to do that. Its message to us this morning is simply this. Live the gospel that you believe. Live it. Don't just think it. Don't just believe it, but live it. The gospel is the message of freedom, wholeness, forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's received by faith in Jesus as Savior, but it's possible to live in a way that's not in step with that, that's actually in contradiction to it. And that's what Peter was doing. And we're going to see how he was doing it and why he was doing it. And if it can happen to the Apostle Peter himself, then it can definitely happen to you and me also. We can not live the gospel that we believe. But this passage will help us to do it. So let's revisit this confrontation and learn through it through some observations. These aren't necessarily in order of appearance, 
but they follow a logical flow. The first observation is this. Simply the gospel that you believe should affect how you live. The gospel should affect how you live. And Paul says in verse 14, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. There's an assumption in that statement. It means there is conduct, there is behavior and actions, a way of living that's in step or consistent with the gospel. And then there's a way of conduct that is not in step with the gospel, not consistent with it. It contradicts it. That means the gospel is something that you don't just believe as a confessional statement that you can repeat to somebody, but it has no other effect on how you actually live out your life. No, there's truth in the gospel that is intended to and will change your conduct. You will act differently because the gospel is true. It's going to show up in your life. We saw earlier in chapter 1 that the gospel or the good news is that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He starts out the letter saying that. Jesus took the blame and the punishment for our wrongful attitudes, thoughts, words, behaviors. And anybody who agrees with that, who humbly confesses their wrongdoing and trusts Jesus as their sin-bearer, that person is forgiven. That person is delivered from the present evil age. Already internally it's happening in a new life and new desires and new hopes, promises that we have, but there's, there's going to be this fulfillment of it in the life to come in a world without evil. That becomes ours through faith in Christ as Savior. That's the truth of the gospel. But we can live as if that's not true. We can live, for example, that we have to somehow earn it, that it doesn't just come to us by faith, that we have to work for it. So we can live like people who are still making payments on a car loan that's already been paid off. You know, let's say you had a car loan four or five years and you were in this habit, is every month you just wrote the check or you did Venmo or whatever for four or five years and then the thing's paid off. But then you keep on paying it after it's paid off. You keep on sending money for a car that doesn't have a loan anymore. You, you own it. That's how we can approach God. We can live without the reality of a debt paid. We might feel like we're making payments to God for our badness by being good. But we don't remember that Jesus has already paid the debt for us. And that means we wouldn't be living the gospel that we believe if we are daily trying to make it right, trying to get, make sure I have his acceptance. That's not a gospel life. And that could be for different reasons that we do that. It could be because of lack of understanding, that we haven't been taught very well. 
Or we've heard conflicting messages like the members of the Galatian churches. They weren't so sure anymore. They were thinking, maybe I need to add law to gospel. Maybe I need to do certain things in order to be God's people. Um, those guys that I met with a few weeks back, they were struggling with it. We've heard that you, that you need to also do things, certain things to be right with God. That could be some lack of understanding. It could be just out of habit that we're so used to thinking that you don't get good things unless you do good things to deserve those things. That can be just a habit, second nature to live as if your forgiveness and your restoration to God is contingent on your daily performance. Reminds me of something from when our kids were little in our house in Minnesota. It was pretty cold in our house in the winter because it was an older house, didn't have good insulation, um, didn't have a good furnace. So we had a gas heater in the family room. Uh, that was the one warm spot. <clears throat> and so in the morning when the kids would wake up, they would go over by that gas heater and just huddle up next to it. It felt so good. Well, one day we replaced our furnace and we got better ductwork to heat our house better and we took out the space heater, the gas heater. But the kids for a while still, when they got up in the morning, they went over to that spot and they huddled over there even though there was no heater anymore. Because of habit. It's hard for habits to die even when the realities have changed. And when it comes to the gospel, our realities have changed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. End of story. There is no more fear of meeting God's standards because Jesus met those standards for us in his sinless life and his sin-bearing death. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands has been nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. Debt paid. It is finished. Those are gospel realities. We don't work for them. We receive them through faith. That's the good news of the gospel, and our conduct is either in step with it or not. It either illustrates the good news or tells a different story. Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, but in his case, it wasn't because of lack of understanding and it wasn't because of habit. It was because of what we call the fear of man. That brings us to the next observation. The fear of man will keep you from living the gospel you believe. The fear of man. A, a craving and a desire for other people's approval. That it matters so much that you'll do whatever it takes to get that approval. That's the fear of man. We read in verse 11, Peter had come to the church of Antioch on a visit. Now this is the church where Paul and Barnabas were leaders. And uh, he did something there that caused Paul to oppose him to his face that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And here's, here's what it was and why he did it in verses 12 and 13. Before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, these men from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's what's going on. The church in Antioch was made up of believers in Christ from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds, non-Jewish Gentile backgrounds. They were one big happy family. They were eating meals together. They were sharing life together. It's really the first church like that that we know about outside, you know, as the gospel starts to spread from Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem is like heavily Jewish center of the world. The gospel goes out from there to all these different places, Antioch being one of them. And there, there's Gentiles and Jews who believe the gospel form a church. And that was very unusual in those days um, because Jews and Gentiles typically didn't mix. There were racial and cultural differences between them, but there was also um, the thinking in most Jewish minds that we're supposed to keep ourselves pure we're a set-apart people who are not to mix with the Gentiles. And that's why Peter was very reluctant to go into the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, in Acts chapter 10. He didn't think that was right to go inside there until the Lord gave him a vision saying, go, he's not unclean. But they had that, they had that reluctance. You just don't mix Jew and Gentile. Well, the church of Antioch had gotten beyond all those barriers. It was an amazing kind of a, a unity uh, between these two groups that don't usually get together. It was so um, unusual that people on the outside are looking in and saying, what is it that's holding these people together? I guess it's Christ. That the, seems to be the common theme. And so in Antioch, they were first called Christians because that's the only explanation for why are these groups together? That was the church of Antioch. So the church is a big, happy family. Peter goes there for a visit. He joins the table fellowship. He's eating with Jews and Gentiles, and he knows he can do that because he knows that we're all one in Christ. Then some other people came from Jerusalem, and they're called certain men from James, meaning James the Lord's brother, James the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And they're also called the circumcision party, or more literally, the circumcised. They probably weren't sent by James, but they claim some connection to him. But these would be guys who were zealous for the law of Moses. They believe you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So they show up in Antioch, and they don't approve of Peter eating with Gentiles. In their minds, the Gentiles are unclean. They're not circumcised. Jews shouldn't be eating with them. So what does Peter do? He drew back and he separated himself. He stopped eating with the Gentile Christians and he began to eat only with the Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians picked up on that and they followed suit. They also separated from their Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. Even Barnabas, one of the church leaders, now separates himself. 
So now you've got the church potluck. And you've got over here all the Gentile non-Jewish believers. And over here you've got all the Jewish believers. They're having their own separate meals. All right? Not a good look. Not unity in Jesus Christ. But they were doing it because they followed Peter's example. Why did he do that? Because he feared the circumcision party. He caved into the pressure to not eat with the Gentiles, even though he knew in his heart there was nothing wrong with it, that they were full brothers and sisters in Christ. But now he's saying by his actions, they're really not. What they really need to do is become Jewish like us, and then we can all eat together. Then we're all a part of the family of God. Not the gospel. Paul has to call him out on it. This is a deadly, deadly situation for the thriving of people's souls. Now, why would he do it? Why would Peter do that? He's an apostle. <laughs> he knows better. Just think, there's, there's ways that we rationalize this stuff. Like, when you're wanting to cave into somebody else's pressure, there's a thing that goes on in your mind. There's a conversation. Should I? Shouldn't I? Well, it wouldn't be bad. You know, there's reasons, and we rationalize these things, right? So how did Peter do it? Well, he's an apostle to the Jews. We know that from earlier in the letter. That's his main group that he's called to. So he might be thinking, well, if I eat with Gentiles, and they take that news back to Jerusalem, where I'm where his home base is, it's going to undermine my influence. Um, I'm going to have a bad reputation. I won't be able to really make a difference now in the Jewish community. You might be thinking something like that. Maybe he's thinking, well, persecution. Uh, early in the history of the church, it wasn't the Romans that were persecuting Christians. It was the Jews. When Paul does his mission trip in Turkey, in those places, Galatia, the Jews are the ones who stoned him, not Romans. So Peter might be thinking, you know, you get in trouble when you would displease the Jews. Maybe he doesn't want that. And also, it appealed to his comfort zone. I mean, he is Jewish by birth, by his history. And so the pressure is moving in the direction of comfort. It's just easier to be around the people that I'm like, we know that temptation, right? On a Sunday morning, we kind of gravitate toward the person that, that we know, that, that does the same things we do, watches the same sports, whatever. That's natural. And so this pressure is pushing on Peter in a direction that he would already want to go in his flesh. All of that's working together so that he draws back, creates this really bad non-gospel example for the whole church that's now creating a division, and it looks like there's two different gospels, one for Gentiles, one for Jews. He wasn't living the gospel, he believed, and the text calls it hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Paul sees it, says it's not in step with the truth of the gospel, and he calls him out. He calls it out to his face. He stood condemned, he says. There is no excuse for this. It's wrong. 
Because the gospel says there's no distinction between Jew and non-Jew. Jew, all are saved by faith in Christ. Not by faith plus circumcision. Not by faith plus ethnicity. Not by faith plus obeying food laws. No, it's faith alone that makes us part of God's family. So he calls out Peter. He says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, how can you, by your conduct, communicate that the Gentiles need to live like Jews, be circumcised, do food laws, all of that, in order to be considered God's people? That's not right. So he rebukes him publicly. Public sin requires a public rebuke. It's a tense situation. This is a leader. This is an apostle. And Barnabas, too. Like, this has to be dealt with now, immediately, in the hearing of everybody. Gospel stuff rises to the level of needing a serious rebuke sometimes in public. But it was the fear of man that led Peter to do all this. And it will, it will also lead us to not live the gospel that we believe. We can cave into pressure. We can say by our lives a different gospel than the one that we say we believe. And so that's the application from all of this. We've talked a lot about the ancient past here. Let's talk about today. Fear of man will influence our interactions with people. And I think it will be in one of two different ways that it might change uh, our actions so they're not in step with the gospel. We can either add requirements to the gospel or we can subtract requirements from it. Let me give an example of how we can add to the gospel in how we act. It's when we make our own personal choices on issues of conscience the expected standard for all other believers. There are areas of conscience that wisdom areas. We could do this. We don't have to do this. But when we say you must do this, we're starting to communicate a non-gospel message that there's something in addition to faith in Christ. Let me use the example of homeschooling. Lots of, child, lots of Christians homeschool their children. Uh, and that's a great option. We did that ourselves. There's a lot of good reasons for doing that. But I once went to a homeschooling conference where some of the speakers made it seem like it's not an option, it's a mandate. And if you aren't homeschooling, you aren't even a real Christian. You must not be. And I know of churches that make homeschooling part of their identity. And if you're not homeschooling, you're not welcome there. That isn't really much different than Peter not eating with the Gentiles. It says God's people aren't those who are in Christ by faith, but those who have faith in Christ and are homeschooling. It's adding to the gospel. It's not in step with the truth of the gospel. But we can subtract from the truth of the gospel also because of fear of man. It's when we act as if people are not really sinners who need a Savior. We can downplay the reality that Christ came to save us from something, from our guilt, from our wrongs, our sins. I'll use the example of Pride Month because that's what we're in right now, in June. Everywhere the rainbow is a statement 
that gay and transgender desires and practices regarding identity and sexuality are good and beautiful and right, and they should be affirmed and celebrated, and that it's not sin. But God says otherwise in his word. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. He created males and females, not a spectrum of gender. And sexual love is confined to the covenant of a union of a male and a female within marriage. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Any sexual activity outside of that arrangement is out of bounds. It neither honors our Creator's design, nor does it promote human thriving. It's sin, it's not something to be celebrated, but to turn away from. But there is a lot of pressure to live like that's not true. To just go along with it and say it's all fine. There's pressure to become an affirming church instead of a welcoming church. And there's a big difference between those two things. A welcoming church is in step with the truth of the gospel. Romans 15.7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ has welcomed you, believers in Christ, by His mercy, by His grace, by atoning for your sin. He reached out to you when you were dead in your trespasses, when you were sinning in all kinds of ways. You still are. I still am. But He reached out and He welcomed you and He said, Come. We respond by faith, and it's all forgiven. Well, there's a welcome that we need to extend to anybody else like that, even to LGBT community. They also need the forgiveness and the restoration and the wholeness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And they are image bearers. We are created in God's image, all of us. Everyone, including LGBT, we're, we're created in the image of God, and that has its own inherent worth and dignity that we need to respect. And so everyone's a fit object for pursuing with God's love. A welcoming church does that. We make sure that people know we're for them. But an affirming church goes farther than that. More than a welcome. To affirm means to call something good, to encourage it, to agree with it. But that's not something that we can do with concepts of gender and sexuality that are not according to God's design, not are, that are not good for human thriving. Love doesn't affirm the sins that destroy our dignity and our worth as human beings. An affirming church is not in step with the truth of the gospel. So we want to be a welcoming church, but not an affirming church. We want to be for LGBT persons, but not for their sins, just as we would be for anybody. It's a tough balance to keep those things together, but Jesus modeled it for us when he rescued the woman who was caught in adultery. 
You might know this story in John chapter 8, where Jesus saved this woman. She, she was brought to him by these men who were vengeful and self-righteous, and they want her to be stoned. They bring her to Jesus, and Jesus intervenes. He rescues her from them. Uh, she's this adulterous woman, a sexual sinner, but he, he rescues her, he intervenes, and when they left, he said to the woman, neither do I condemn you, but he didn't leave it there. He said also, go, and from now on, sin no more. So he saves the woman. His first priority was for her care and her deliverance from death, and he was also truthful about her actions, and he called it sin that she should no longer do. Those are our priorities also when it comes to our LGBT friends, coworkers, relatives. Our first priority is that they feel the welcome as fellow image bearers and hear about the rescue that only Jesus can give. And after that, it makes sense to hear, go and sin no more about the lifestyle. In Jesus, we have real wholeness. We have a far deeper acceptance, a far better eternal future than anything that is being offered by the world. So, to sum up, the fear of man keeps us from living the gospel we believe, either by adding or by subtracting requirements in how we act. But the way forward is to embrace the love and the, and the goodness of the salvation that God has given to us in Christ. And that will shape our lives. In the account of the confrontation, it ends with a reminder of the true gospel, uh, of, of what really satisfies the soul, what really gives us hope, what Jesus actually came to do. And so let's finish with that, with the gospel that you should believe, <laughs> because it is the real thing. It's in verses 15 to, eight, to 16. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, there's some debate about whether this paragraph is a continuation of what Paul was saying to Peter in the public confrontation, or whether he's transitioned to speaking directly to the Galatians here. It seems to be a little bit of both. But either way, this is the beginning of an extended explanation of the true gospel that he and Peter both believe, which the Galatians also believed until their faith got upset by somebody else. And it's the gospel that we should also believe. Here's the beautiful logic of that long sentence in 15 and 16. He starts by saying, we were Jews by birth. So he and Peter, they're, they're, they know the law. <laughs> they grew up with this. Uh, they know it backwards and forwards. They were circumcised. They've refrained from eating unclean food. They've kept all the feasts. They've kept the Sabbath, the whole deal. They did the law of Moses all their life. But having been transformed by Jesus, having their eyes opened by the Spirit, they now see clearly, they know 
that keeping all those laws did not justify them. They know it. They tried it. They did it. They lived it. And they said, we know that doesn't justify anybody. We're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Now, this idea of being justified is going to be spelled out in pretty much detail at the end of 2 and all the way through chapter 3. So I'm just going to introduce right now the definition of it. To be justified means to be declared righteous by God. To be declared by Him, to be right with Him, to be acceptable to Him, to having met all of His requirements for obeying the moral standards that he's given to us. Uh, let me just use a Boy Scout illustration. I had a short stint as a Cub Scout when I was a kid. It was short because I was burning things down, like our alley, um, the grass in the alley, and my dad used removal from my scouting career as the punishment. Um, to try and teach me not to burn things. So it worked, but it ended my scouting very early. But I was a Cub Scout for a while. And I know that we were trying to earn merit badges, these little pins that you would stick on your patch on your shirt. You, do, you get merit badges by doing the activities in the scouting manual, like tying knots or climbing a rope or all kinds of things, learning life skills. Um, so you do all that stuff, but to get the badge, you have to prove that you did it. So there was something to sign, a little booklet or a paper, I don't remember what, but Dad had to sign that thing. And then if I take that to the scoutmaster and say, see, I did it, I get my merit badge. But my dad had to sign off on it. To be justified is like that. It's having the signed off fully legal proof that you meet the standards of God's laws, every single one of them. You've completely done it perfectly. But it isn't the record of your, what you did, of you keeping the laws, because you haven't. <laughs> Nobody has. Instead, it's Jesus' record of his sinless life. And God the Father signs off on it as now legally belonging to you, that his record is now your record. And so you get much more than the merit badge. You get everything that Jesus deserves. You get eternal life. You get a resurrection. You get fullness of favor. You get all of God's love, all of his, his uh, family and the house, the you know, all the, that environment of, of security, all of that becomes yours, a new world, a new life, a new body. Because of Jesus' record, that makes you justified, not your record. You get it from Him. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ, we receive it. We don't work for it. That's the gospel that saves sinners like us. It's the gospel that saved Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, an accomplice to murder. It's the gospel that saved Peter, who lied. I don't even know who Jesus is. 
He's a hypocrite in the church of Antioch. He gets saved by this gospel. The gospel saves sexual sinners. It saves all kinds of sinners. It's the gospel that saves you and me and everyone who believes it. We'll be lingering on this gospel for several weeks, especially justification, because it keeps coming up in the letter. And the reason that it does is because God knows that we need to have it over and over and over again. It doesn't take right away. <laughs> But we're going to hear it more and more and more. And it'll help us to not add anything or take anything away from the gospel that we believe or that we, that we live. I'll just close with this. The encouragement is to live the gospel that you believe. And it starts with believing it. Have you recognized yourself as broken, flawed, needing Jesus to restore you to God and to wholeness? That's where the renewal begins. Just receive it. Don't work for it. And the more you experience the restoration, the more you understand you are safe in His hands, that your future is incredibly bright, that no one can take away from you what God has given to you, then it starts to shape our conduct and it starts to weaken that fear of man where we try and live it differently as if it's not true because it's filling us up. It's so much, it's so good that we're not ashamed of it. Rather, we'd say, this is good to other people and live that way. May our conduct be more and more in step with the truth of the gospel as we go through this letter, as we go through life, as we encourage each other with it day by day. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you use confrontations and failures to teach us. <laughs> We know that we learn that way in life. I thank you for, for Peter's failure and Paul's rebuke because now we see how important it is, how good this gospel is, and how important it is that we protect it and live that way, to live if it's true. We have nothing to be ashamed of. Your way is good. Your way is right. Your gospel is true and the only way to salvation. So help us to rejoice in it, to be comforted by it, and to be ones who communicate it, not only in words, but also in the way we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing in response. <laughs>